out here in the perimeter, there are no stars. Out here, we is stoned, immaculate. Hello and welcome. This is the C86 Show. I'm David Eastall. As you know, we love a special guest. This week, it's going to be the turn of the Leeds-based electronic rock group. It is the one and only the Cassandra Complex, because I recently spoke to Rodney Orpheus. To find out more about life, love, poetry and all the other groovy stuff. And just to say that uh, this year, 2022, they brought out a new album called The Plague. So do check that out. It is stunning. But uh, this is going to be the interview. So you're going to learn lots more and much, much more. Anyway, look, after several minutes of casual chat, we got down to that exciting subject that was the early formative years. Rodney, it's over to you. I mean, I think the first single I ever bought was Jareg Doom by Horse Lips, which it's a band that most people listen to has probably never heard of. But in Ireland, they were they're like the they're the the band in Ireland. Um, they're like the legends. And Jareg Doom is the unofficial Irish national anthem these days. Um, and so if you're a kid growing up in Ireland around that period, Horse Lips were like a hugely influential band. Right. So that was the f- that was the first single I ever bought that I can remember was Jarring Doom by Horselips. Great, Amazing. great, great record. And and um, did you have kind of any brothers or sisters who were kind of quite musical or gave you some influence on life? No, no. I was the I mean, I'm from a very large family, but I was the eldest kid. And my nobody in my family was at all interested in music. Nobody apart from me. And um I got into music, I think it was about 14 or something. And um sort of vaguely starting to get interested in music. And then I was in a record store in a little little town where I grew up in. Um, I was in this record store after work. And I remember, I think the first album I ever bought there was Low, David Bowie. Oh, wow. Um, I pulled out this cover and it was amazing. And, um, and I... Uh, I asked them to put it on and it started up and, you know, Sound of Vision, Be My Wife, which is still like an, one of my favorite songs. And that record just blew me away, especially like the second side. Yes. But as I was then, the, and that, that was like a big thing. Um, and then I think a few days or a couple of weeks after that, um, I was in the same store looking through the racks and they put on this single and it just completely blew my fucking mind. And it was the day the world turned day glow by X-ray specs, uh, which was like, wow. And that was the first sort of punk record that really like made me go, holy shit, this is unbelievable. And that's still one of my favorite records of all time. Yes. Uh, that's, that's incredible. Um, and then I think, I went to see the first gigs I ever went to. See, once you get me going, you can't stop me. Um, <laughs> one of the first gigs I ever went to was to see the Lurkers, if you remember them. Oh, and yes. all yeah. And but the support band were a Northern Ireland band who had only played a couple of shows and they were playing their first concert outside of their hometown. They were called the Undertones. And I saw the Undertones, and it was like the third or fourth show, I think. And they played 37 songs, mainly Ramones covers, and they were playing Sweet and T-Rex songs. Um, and I, I'm a huge T-Rex fan. And they just played like like 30, they played 37 songs. 
And that lasted about a half an hour. And they were so good that they came on again afterwards and did the whole 37 songs again, because that was the only songs they knew. They literally <laughs> played the whole set twice because nobody would let them off the stage. And that, that was an amazing concert. Well, I would imagine. So whereabouts did you grow up, by the way? I grew up in the middle of nowhere in Northern Ireland. Right. Blimey. It's because I... That's of... why I have that accent, you know, like... Uh, it's been my accent's been heavily modified over the years, but it's it still does happen. Noticeably so, so I grew up in a village in the middle of nowhere in East Anglia, which is kind of culturally a little mm. bit barren. And we, you know, right. we were behind the times quite seriously. So, you know, punk never sort of reached our village at all. I don't even think it reached it now, actually. Really? So it was it was kind of it was very, if anything, it was very sort of a bit of a rock, heavy rock and soft mm. rock, but it was rock. It was status quo, basically. Lots of people right. who were on mopeds and motorbikes, which might have been 150 mm. or 250 motorbikes. And right, just, right. you know, you left school at 16, went to the chicken factory, worked in the, you know, some factory or the jeans factory, you know, and that was one's life or mechanic, you know. So mm. career-wise, it yep, was kind yep. of a pretty, death, you know, it was pretty horrendous, really. So um, No, I can some... understand that. Yeah, I mean, like, we we everyone grew up in status quo those days. Dun, 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 dun. Um, but punk was a really big thing for kids in Northern Ireland because back then it was the middle of the troubles. You know, we were growing up in a war zone, and then Stiff Little Fingers brought out the album Alternative Ulster, you know, and Flammable Material. They brought out the single Alternative Ulster off that, and that was just like a bullet to the heart um, to kids growing up there because. We were so frustrated, and and I say we were brought up in a war with everybody against everybody else, and uh, then this movement came along that basically just said fuck everybody and everything, and you know you can be liberated from all this stuff, and that was hugely influential to us. Hugely yes, that Still Full but- of Fingers first album was like, you know, had just was like yeah i say it was it was incredible it was so powerful yeah absolutely though i have to say a little bit of a i was obsessed with football in in my youth as well and my my real apart from david bowie being a first love george best was my other first love i wanted to be george best (laughs) when i grew up but i even bought some you know got some george best football boots which were quite sweet and a bit wow I know. They didn't quite fit. They were a bit tight, actually. But, <laughs> but I still had to wear them and pretend to be George West. Did did sport enter into your life at all, or did you? No, you... I've never been interested in sport at all. Not even slightly. Right. I've never go. been sporty. I mean, I'm hugely into gaming. And when I was a kid, I was really into board games, big time. Uh, and so that was my sport, and it still is. I mean, I, I, I'll happily watch a chess match or a video gaming company, eSport, but watching grown men run around a field and pouring rain strikes me as being an absolutely absurd pastime. That's a good, that's, <laughs> a, that's worth doing. Did you, when did you discover Risk? When was Risk your first, you know, when did you play your Risk? first Risk? Oh, God. Um, I think the first board game I ever discovered was Cluedo, or Clue for American listeners, um, and, which I discovered when I was like, I don't know, eight or nine years old and was just amazed by um risk came along when i was about maybe 11 or 12 right never really got into risk risk is not a very good board game it's amazing that it's still so popular but it's not a very good game no you always end up like with yeah compared to most modern games but um yeah i played a lot of risk when i was around my early teens i think yes but cluedo is genius so um it's absolute genius 
Do you do you just just briefly? Do you have a method when you play Cluedo, or are you quite are you I methodical? Cluedo in years. I don't even remember. Like I'm sure. I, I don't know. That's an interesting question. I, I have to I have to pull that game out again sometime. It's been so long since I ever played Cluedo. Yes. But, but you know, I, one funny thing is, um, Waddington's was based in Leeds. Uh, who made John Waddington Company that made Cluedo and licensed Monopoly from America and so on. And uh, when I first moved to Leeds, I went up to the factory and they used to have a pub nearby called, what the hell was it called? There was a, a pub right, right beside the John Waddington's factory. And the pub was the Cluedo board. It literally was designed like a Cluedo board. It had a conservatory with loads of plants in it. And it had a, a library and a dining room where you could order food and so on. The whole pub was was like the Cluedo board. And it even had secret passages on the walls and stuff like that. It was fantastic. It was the yes. first ever theme pub I've ever been in my life. And I was just blown away by that. Because I don't That's know a that because people want to have these kind of um, escape rooms, but I noticed that I think they have a life-size monopoly. Is there a life-size monopoly game now in London that you can you can go and have an immersive experience? It's all about immersive experiences, isn't it? So, um, <laughs> so yeah, what... the ironic thing about Monopoly is Monopoly. I don't know if, if you know this, but Monopoly was originally invented by a woman as an anti-capitalist warning. It was called the Landlord's Game. Yes. And it was designed to teach kids about how bad it was for landlords and corporations to own monopolies. And uh, and it was meant to, and in a stunning twist of irony, right, her the rights to that game were stolen from her by a guy who then sold it to Parker Brothers, who then took out a patent on the game, even though they hadn't invented it. Jesus. Thus proving the original point. It was, actually. And I know, I think the Queen... God bless her. Um, she banned it on Christmas, didn't she? Because the family would start fighting. You could imagine them, couldn't you? They were right. Well, fuck them all. <laughs> fuck the royal family. Uh, yes, well, that's that, that's absolutely. <laughs> but um, so when did you? I mean, because because as as the seventies progressed and we had you know lots of uh, interesting moments, ups and downs, and three day strikes. You know, seventy nine Thatcher gets in, then the early eighties is the Falkland War. There's the miner strike. Mm -hmm. There's you know the uh, the Greenham Common mm -hmm. you know um, campaign as well, and and then a bit later on Red Wedge. So what happens to you in the late seventies and early eighties at this stage? Um, I moved to Leeds, uh, kind of almost by accident. I mean, I just need to get out of Northern Ireland. I mean, Northern Ireland's biggest problem back then, and still to a certain extent, is it's a brain drain, uh, in that anybody who's got any brains whatsoever got the fuck out of there, you know, as fast as they could. So every kid who was halfway intelligent left either to go to university or to find a job or whatever. They would go to go across the water to England or they would go even farther. They'd emigrate to Australia or Canada or wherever. So, so what you had then in Northern Ireland is everybody over the age of 25 was a moron because everybody under everybody between the ages of 18 and 25 who had any intelligence got the hell out of the country. And I was one of those guys. So um, I ended up in Leeds by bizarre range coincidences. And uh, and then I met Paul Dillon. Because um, I used to go to, a, there was, a, there was a, a nightclub in Leeds 
um, called, I can't remember the name, but it was run by the two guys who later became the Age of Chance, if you remember them. Oh, God, yes. Um, yeah, I Steve them. and I can't Steve and Neil from the Age of Chance, um, who, but before they were the Age of Chance, they ran a video, the first video tech, which is like a disco where they had uh, things up and it was all very 80s MTV generation. And I used to go to that club. And one night I turned up there and um, they were like, sorry, we're closed for a private party. And I'm like, you know, they were like, yeah, but you come in, you're a regular. So I basically get crashed this, what was a birthday party at this club. And um, during that, uh, the night, that that night, um, the DJ put on a Decrypts record, which I'd never heard in a discotheque before, right? So I immediately leapt out of the dance floor and started dancing around. And everybody else was off the dance floor apart from one guy. There was one big, tall guy dancing around to this Decrypts record with me. And we're both like, whoa, this is so great. You know, industrial electronic music on the dance floor. Uh, never, never happened before. So after that, uh, I was leaving the club and I was queuing up to pick up my, my coat. And I noticed this guy standing behind me. And I said, oh, you were that guy dancing to Decrypts. And he says, yeah, you like Decrypts? I'm like, yeah, yeah, yeah. And uh, he was like, well, actually, this is my birthday party. And how come I don't know you? And I was like, oh, sorry, I get crushed your party. And he was like, yeah, well, that's why they put the record on, because it's my birthday. So you're, ha- I'm happy you get crushed the party because you like decrypts. Um, and, and he was like, what are you doing in Leeds? I said, I want to form a band. He said, well, so do I. Uh, he said, OK, well, come over to this address tomorrow. And we'll, we'll... and that's where the Cassandra comic started. Blimey. From dancing to a decrypts record. Um, amazing, so Paul and I... Paul and I started the Cassandra Complex, and then we 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 squirreled away in the basement of uh, Victoria Road, where he lived. Uh, next door was the three next three Johns lived next door to us. Right, um, John Hyatt from the Three Johns, and Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry were just around the corner down the street, and I lived in Nashville Avenue, um, and in the same street as me, like two doors down, we and Hussey moved in there to join the sisters. Um, so there was this little area in Leeds called Headingley, and during the 80s, it was like it's like about one square mile. Um, and during the 80s, like everybody, everybody uh who was anybody was there, you know, and everyone went to the same pub, and it all the bands from Leeds at that time lived in the same this and basically within a mile of each other. Right. So if I was walking from my house to Paul's house to rehearse, I would I would hear Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry rehearsing on the way up on various. I think the Sinister Cleaners lived just up the road from there, and and whatever. And then the Three Johns were next door to us. So um, so we squirreled away and started making this weird electronic music. And then there was a a fanzine that came out of Leeds University, um, and they sent uh, run by a guy called Jazz Willis, and he sent over somebody to interview us. Um, called Andy Booth, who was the first person who really got what we were doing, who loved the music, really got it. And um, afterwards, um, we, we were talking, Paul and I were talking to each other, and we're like, you know, well, oh, that guy, Andy, he really knows his stuff. Maybe we should also join the band. And um, we're like, well, can he play the guitar? I don't know. Let's ask him. So we <laughs> called him up and said, can you play the guitar? He said, yeah, I do play the guitar. I'm like, okay, do you want to join the Cassandra Complex? And he was like, okay. And there we go, and he's still on the band now. So Blimey. that's how we formed. That is an extraordinary meeting of minds. So did you, at that stage, when did you meet people like the, you know, the sisters or Chumbawamba and people like that? 
Well, I remember when I first moved to Leeds, I was living in a shared house, and um, the, somebody else in the house, I was they said like, you know, you you want to form a band, and I'm like, yeah. He said, I said, I, but I don't know anybody, any musician. He said, well, that's easy. Just go to the Faversham pub. All the musicians go there, and I'm like, okay. So I found this pub called the Faversham, and I went in there, and sure enough, it was full of people who were clearly musicians, and the jukebox had some great music, and. But I still didn't know anyone, and everyone seemed to be in little cliques. So I was sitting there one night, all on my own, some, and like a corner booth kind of thing. And this guy comes over, dressed in black, and he sits down beside me uh, in the booth. And it's just the two of us, and each of us was sitting there on our own, nursing a drink. And then he gets up and he puts some money in the jukebox. And he went, came back, sat down again, and Silver Machine by Hawkwind comes on. And I looked down, like, hey, did you put on Silver Machine? He goes, yeah. I love Hawkwind. I'm like, I love Hawkwind too. One of my favorite bands. He goes, oh, that's great. Yeah, okay. Yeah, yeah. And then, then the next song comes on, and it was Cherie by Suicide. Uh, or Dream Baby Dream, actually, the single. Uh, Dream Baby Dream by Suicide. I'm like, wait a minute. Did you put Suicide on? He went, you like Suicide as well? I'm like, oh, my God, they're my favorite band. He went, like, you like Hawkwind and Suicide. So do I. And I'm like, I like Hawkwind and Suicide. What's your name? He said, oh, my name's Andy. Uh, uh, I'm Rodney, and that's how I got to know Andrew Eldridge. Uh, and we became really good friends. And we used to go out and hang out in the Faversham together and tell everyone how we were going to make this new music that was going to change the world. And it was based on drum machines and you know, electronics and classic rock combined, blah blah blah. And people thought we were crazy, yes, well, absolutely, and um, but ambitious as well. I mean, a lot of the bands I've interviewed from the sort of 80s from this show, obviously, there was a kind of a slight indirect grant, isn't there? Because there was the sort of, uh, you could sign on, which was good. And there was the Job Seekers oh, Alliance yeah. and Enterprise Alliance schemes. And if you had a £1,000, you could become self-employed for a mm-hmm. year. And you get yep. your house and benefit, your council tax mm-hmm. paid. And thirty. Yeah, it was, it was great. It Everyone was, was on the door. Everyone, Everyone was on the door. Um, and, and back then, the door was, you know, Leeds was a cheap place to live. And the door was... Not like it is now, which is basically substances level. It was, you know, you could live, you could live not maybe not comfortably, but you could you could have a decent life while you were signing on the door. So everybody did, and that was it. Was basically a grant for musicians yes. and, and artists. That's why so many. I mean, I mean, if you look at today, if you look at the bands today, they're all they're all fucking privileged white kids. You know, they're all, uh, you know, it's it, and and same with acting and and art, any creative endeavor these days, it's all full of rich kids, because they're the only people who can afford to do it. Um, because these days, working class kids like me, we kind of we want to have a hope in hell of surviving long enough to actually become a musician. It's yes. almost impossible to be a musician if you're working class anymore to be successful. Because you just don't have the time and the the opportunity and the to hone your craft and and become who you want to be. It's not possible. Yes. Now, admittedly, you know, the other thing is that every as well as that, every musician who was on the door had a little thing on the side, you know. Um, you know, usually everybody had a, an odd part-time job that was paying under the table. We we did that as well occasionally. I mean, that's the reason why. Every musician from back then has a weird surname. That's why, you know, <laughs> Andrew Eldritch, Sid Vicious, Johnny Rotten. And the reason why they all got weird surname, Joe Strummers, because everybody was signing on. 
Uh, and if you signed on and then played a concert under your real name, you were fucked. They'd cut your dole off. So everybody had everybody in a in a band had a weird surname, so the dole wouldn't catch them. That's how I became Rodney Orpheus. That wasn't what I was. Well, Rodney's my original first name. All of us kept our original first names, but we all changed our surnames to fill the dole office. Yes, this is true. Simple as that. And just hope they didn't go to any of those obscure gigs. Really, I know there's a lot. <laughs> There was a lot of there was a lot of people washing up at that time, wasn't there? And yeah, doing... apart from me and Curtis, who worked at the Dole office. Um, nice, <laughs> good old Ian Curtis. Um, yeah. I know there's a classic photograph of him at the uh, Christmas party, isn't there, or something? With yeah, his I just saw that the other day. Yeah. It's, it's beautiful, yeah. isn't it? So as you started to develop, I mean, being an electronic band in the early '80s, this is quite mm-hmm. quite pioneering, isn't it? There wasn't a lot of kind of equipment and uh, electronic music mm. being played so how did you start to develop your kind of sound and your ideas at this stage well, the thing was there was a lot of equipment um because um the second hand leeds was full of pawn shops and second hand stores and they were full of shitty old synthesizers and drum machines that nobody wanted so we were we were buying like i, I had like a, 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 my synthesizer collection was like, you know, a fucking picture of Kraftwerk or something. Um, I, I picked it off 50 quid each. You know, I was I was buying, like, I had a Roland TR-808, Roland TR-909, um, that I bought for like 50 quid each. These days, they go for over a 1,000. I mean, I bought an EMS synthesizer in a junk store for 55 pounds, and I've held onto that since then. I only sold it last summer when I was moving, and I sold it for seven grand. Blimey, that is yeah. <laughs> that must have brought because back then nobody face. nobody knew the value of these things. You know, loads of people would buy synthesizers and drum machines. Stupid rich people would buy synthesizers and drum machines, thinking they could be, you know, a next pop genius. And then they couldn't figure out how they worked, so they'd just pawn them off at a secondhand store, and we would buy them and clean them up and and use and learn how to use them. Blimey. Um, so that that's how we did it. I mean, that's, I mean, that's why, like, you know, that's how why hip hop or hip hop. And techno all all were invented because poor black kids were buying drum machines that nobody else wanted. Yes. You know, the TR-808, the Roland TR-808, which is the most legendary drum machine now, um, was worthless back then because when Roland produced it, the people who bought it were people who were trying to emulate a drummer and it didn't sound like a drum kit. So people would just sell them off for cheap because nobody because it didn't sound enough like a drum kit. Yes, this is true. And, but, you know, then people like us would buy them dirt cheap and go, we don't care. It doesn't sound like a drum kit. It sounds fucking great. Doing, <laughs> doing, 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 you know. Wow. Yeah. Fantastic. You that must have had still... a lot of perseverance in those early days. Did you ever feel oh. a bit, you know, trying to keep it positive and, and thinking, no, this is a really good idea? I mean, you know, because because a lot of times, I mean, doing this show quite, you know, quite a lot over the last few years, I mean, most bands have that five-year narrative, don't they? You know, they get together mm. 12 months of rehearsing and messing about, and then they might get that single, which is fantastic, and then the John Peel play, which is like, oh, my God, mm. we've got John Peel. This is great. Mm. There, there is a sort of a green light. But, but having a little bit of success and a little bit of um, enthusiasm goes a long way, doesn't it, for the creative endeavour? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, um, we were weird because, I mean, we had a really long-term vision. Like One of the things we said from the beginning, like before when I I formed the band, I had the name and I had the logo before I ever played a note of music. 
I and and I, I had figured out what it was going to sound like in my head before we ever played anything. Um, so it was very much. I knew what I wanted to do, and I knew it was going to happen, and there was nothing in the world was going to stop me. And and Andrew was the same. Um, when I met Andrew, that was the first person I ever met with that same level of self. I don't know. I mean, even even more than me. I mean, uh, it's just that motivation to really succeed. Now that doesn't mean um, there aren't doubts on the way. I mean, I remember like many many. Uh, Many years later, I ended up moderating a panel at a big music uh, business festival uh, conference. And there was a bunch of musician, wannabe musicians sitting in the audience. And somebody said to the panel, can the panel tell me what's the most important thing that they can recommend someone to have? And someone from the panel said, the most important thing is to have a belief in yourself, is to really believe in yourself and really push yourself. and and." Every successful musician I know is firmly committed in believing in themselves. And everyone applauded. And every, you know, and then it got to me and I said, that's absolute bullshit. Because the one, I know a lot of very successful musicians, and the one thing they all have in common is crippling self-doubt. Uh, and, and so that doesn't mean we didn't. And, but that doubt, and I still suffer from crippling self-doubt, even you know decades <laughs> later, and many, many, many successful records. I'll st- every time I make a record, I go, this sounds horrible. Oh, my God, I'm useless. I have no talent. What's going on here? Um, but you've got to learn to use that to motivate yourself to go, well, I can do better than that. I can, keep, I can make this work. And so it's a combination of that crippling self-doubt and using it to power yourself onwards. Um, and we very much had had the feeling of that. And and one thing we wanted from the beginning, we said we're never going to be a local band, because the for us the worst thing in the world was to be a successful local band. You know, like being featured in Leeds or the paper every two weeks and yes. playing playing some pub to fifty people every month or three times a week or whatever. That to us felt stupid. We wanted to be to go from not to a hundred. We wanted to go straight to being an internationally successful major band right away. Well, major in the sense of successful band, making money band, um, and not just a local band of has-beens. So, like, for example, at the beginning, we had, we had certain grounds. We would never play support concerts. We never played a support. And we've still rarely, I think the only only ever done one support tour in our entire career uh, because we never wanted to be that band who were always the support band. Yes. Um and uh and so we spent um years before we ever played we played maybe three gigs in the first four years. Um and uh and we didn't make a record for four years, even though we could everybody else we knew was making records, we didn't make a record for a very long time. And we had our own studio, but we wanted to make sure we we got it right. So we were learning and learning and learning and learning and teaching ourselves. And then we put out the first record, we put it out, and it was weird. We sent it out to all the usual places, Jump Hill, Enemy, Sounds, you know, the whole nine yards. And nothing, nothing happened. No, we got a couple, we got a few reviews that were okay, but we were like, this is weird. Because this is like, we're doing something really revolutionary and nobody's spotting it. And all the reactions are very lukewarm. Jump Hill didn't even play us. 
you know, we were like, this is the weirdest thing ever because we revered John Peel and and we were influenced by all the bands we heard. They were like, how can this not be happening? It was odd. So we released that on our own label and uh, through Red Rhino Records in New York, who distributed it. So we were up at Red Rhino. Um, a few weeks later, we went up to Red Rhino. I were telling them, so like, well, you know, I'm sorry, the record's doing so badly. And they were like, what are you talking about? And we're like, well, you know, we haven't really had much response. They're like, no, we've sold it out. We we wanted you here to ask, could we press some more? I'm like, wait a minute. We made a thousand copies and it's sold out already. And they said, oh, yeah. Oh, yeah. And I'm like, how many do you want to press? I said, well, we think we can do another, you know, we can probably do at least another 500. And I'm like, okay, let's take the money you earned of those and press another 500. And that should keep us going, you know, for a while. And then we got a call two weeks later and they said, um, we sold all those 500 records. Can we make another thousand? And we're like, okay, uh, fine. Who's buying them? And like, we don't know. Um, <laughs> some of the distributors in Europe are buying them. Um, and uh, okay, fine. So great, let's make another record. So we made the second record, Moscow, Idaho. And um, went back to Red Rhino. They said, let's press 2,500 because we sold 2,500 of the last one. We'll probably sell 2,500 of these. So that should be, we just do one pressing and that'll, that'll be the whole record. We were like, great. Two weeks later, they called up and said, can we press another 2,000? We're like, what the fuck is going on here? We still had no press, no airplay, nothing. But we're selling thousands and thousands of records and we couldn't figure it out. We were like, we were super happy, but we were also really confused. Um, and then one day we got, I got, a, I was in this Victoria Road in the studio and the phone rang and it was this guy with a Dutch accent. He said, hello, my name is Rude from Holland. And we would like to know, would you be available to play in Holland? And I'm like, hell yeah. Um, well, yeah, absolutely. And he said, well, yeah, there's a, there's a new club opening in Den Haag. It's called Das Pad de Troja, which means Trojan Horse. And of course, the, our name of the Cassandra Comics refers to the, the Trojan Horse. And we would like you to be the first band to play at the new club. And I'm like, okay, how much are you paying? They said, oh, not very much, only £2,500. I'm like, fuck yes! <laughs> um, yes oh, where do I sign? You know, and we went over there and the place was absolutely packed. And he said, I was like... He said, and they were like, oh, also, we can maybe get you some concerts in Germany. I'm like, yeah, great. He said, yeah, you know, the DJs love your records. Everyone loves your records. You're like the biggest band here. And we're like, are we? Because in England, we still couldn't get arrested, you know? Because, um, because you're off the first record. You talk, is this March that's come yeah, out? Yeah, March and... was the first record, 1985. But then yeah. you also then signed Richard's label, don't you, for the second one? Ruska. Moscow. Yeah, yes. Ruska Records. That was on Ruska Records. Yeah. So why um, did for you sign for? Why did you find, sign with Richard for that one? Basically, because the, they started asking us to do all these concerts in Europe, and we were like, we were panicking. We didn't. We had to like, and Paul had just left the band for various personal reasons, and we got Jez Willis, who's now in the Utah scenes, and Keith Langley in, um, to, and we had to rehearse a new band and get ready to do all these concerts. We didn't have time to. to I mean putting on a record is really time consuming and we didn't really know what to do. And then Richard came along and said, I've got this record label. We'll sort all that out for you. We'll do all the business. All you got to do is make records and bring them in. We'll sort everything. And we were like, yeah, why not? And, and that was great. And it was really good. And it worked really well. And Richard had, Richard had one of those grants from the government to set up his own business. And he had a little office 
and the back of uh, and uh, back of Leeds City Centre, and it was good. So that was fine. And then we turned up in ha- uh, in Hamburg, and um, at this little club in Hamburg for the very first concert in Germany, and the club was held. I think about three hundred fifty people. It was, you know, decent enough size, but. It was small, weird, small and pokey, but it was great. We did the sound check. We went back to the hotel. And then we're driving from the hotel to the to the venue. First ever concert in Germany. We'd only ever done like four or five concerts in total before then. And we're driving down the street, and there's this huge crowd of people filling the entire street. And we're like, holy shit, what's going on here? And and there have been lots of... Um, there were, Hamburg was famous back then for having loads of... Uh, revolutionary fervor there were loads of demonstrations and riots and everything else hamburg was a real boiling point we're like holy shit maybe it's some kind of demonstration or riot and we're getting caught right in the middle of it (laughs) and then uh and then somebody somebody said maybe they're here to see us and we all started laughing we're like that's so funny and then we got closer and realized that this whole crowd of people were all standing outside this club and we're like maybe they are there to see us holy shit you know, and literally the whole street was full of people, hundreds and hundreds and hundreds and hundreds of people spilling all over the street. Right. This is the weirdest thing ever. So we're like, oh my God, we're so cool. So we got out and we're all like, this is the coolest thing ever. And so we tried to go in the venue and they wouldn't let us in because they didn't know who we were. Nobody knew who we were. And so there's hundreds of people between us and the venue. And we're like, excuse me, can we get through, please? And they're like, no. No, no, you can't. This is the, get back in the in the in the line. You know, get back in the queue. And we're like, yeah, yeah but we're the band. Like, if you're the band, where are your instruments? We're like, they're inside. We are ready to the sunshine. It's like, yeah, sure. Back in the queue, lad. And so we we were standing in a queue outside our own gig for like forty five minutes, trying to find somebody to let us in. We're like, you know, you guys, if you don't let us in, there won't be any concert at all. And they were like, sure, sure, sure. Um, so no one will believe it was us. Um, and that was her first concert in Germany. Blimey, that is that is kind of extraordinary. And also, had you slightly not panicked, but were you thinking when you saw your sort of other kind of mates from the lead scene and they they started to have that kind of kind of success and started to tour and have albums? Did did you ever feel a little bit anxious or a little bit worried that you had missed the boat slightly in that that? No, early not, not period? at all. No, no, not at all. I mean, because by that stage, I mean, we took a lot longer before we really started doing stuff. We spent a lot more time, like, honing who we were, if you like. But I don't think too many bands had actually really broken through by then. I mean, the sisters, obviously. and But, you know, we were we were friends. I mean, Andrew was still was a good friend. They were doing really well. And that was great because they they totally deserved it. I mean, I still remember going to the... This my first ever sisters concert was when they were supporting the psychedelic furs in Leeds. It was like the third or fourth show or whatever. And and I'd known Andrew um for ages, but Ned didn't really know his music. You know, they had only made the first single, it was Damage Done or whatever it was called. And which was meh. And uh and then they came on stage and it was just like the most incredible thing you've ever seen in your life. They were fucking amazing. I mean, Andrew was an absolute star from the moment his foot stepped on the stage. I was totally blown away. Yes. Um, and and so, you know, but but most of the other bands were Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry had some success in Germany as well. And but we weren't really too, too closely in touch with them. So 
No, we we never really had that feeling at all. I mean, and ironically, or weirdly, Andrew and the lead singer of this of Red Lorry, Yellow Lorry, and me all ended up moving to Hamburg um, sometime after that, completely independently, um, just because we loved it there, and Germany was was a really big market for us all. Yes, it um, sounds like the European side of life probably catapulted you kind of quite quickly. So how do you... After that, those gigs in sort of uh, Holland and then Hamburg, did you start to tour the UK a bit more or did you bring out the first no, album first? We never toured the UK. We've never, ever toured the UK at mm-hmm. all in our entire our entire career. My it God. Was so, because, because it didn't make any sense because we could play, we were literally, we went straight from, after Moscow, Idaho, after that second single, we went straight into doing like 50 date tours in Europe um, and getting paid like serious money playing in front of hundreds, sometimes thousands of people. And if we played in England, it was like nice gig lads. Here's a tenor, you know, playing <laughs> to two men and a dog. Yes. Uh, and so it was like, why, why would we bother? And, and it, it kind of disturbed me at first because we kind of felt like we need to be taken seriously in England because England's really important, blah, blah, blah. Uh, and then we got to the stage where we just went, fuck, why is England important? Who cares what people in England think anymore? Um, you know, let's go where, let's go where people like us. You know, let's go where people appreciate us and, and pay us. Yes. And, and where we can make a living out of this stuff. And, uh, you... and uh, it quickly became, that quickly became what it was about, you know. And did you sort of become inspired by any any other bands from that period like Liebark or the Young Gods did they sort of oh the, you know, I mean we played with the young we were on the same we moved after Ruska we did the first album we did the first couple of singles uh second third singles on the first album Ruska and then we signed to play it against them in Belgium um who had a lot more money and power and could really push us a lot better uh though it was a pity we had to leave Ruska but it was just that was the way it was um, I mean, the pro- Ruska's problem was that they took, they were making, Ruska was making serious money off the Cassandra complex, serious money. And they thought they could duplicate that success with some other bands. So they signed a whole bunch of other bands, especially bands from Leeds, all of whom died on the vine. So they were, <laughs> they had spent, so we were like, hey, how about spending some of our money on promotion for our records? Uh, instead of throwing it down a hole, but they didn't, and, and the money all vanished, and they didn't have any money left to promote us. So, okay, I I understand their thinking at the time, and it was Richard was trying to really, you know, set, find a really big record label. But at the end of the day, Ruska was the Cassandra Complex, and a whole bunch of other people no one cared about. Yes, uh, realistically. Uh, and so we end up saying to play it against them, and on play it against play it against them, then had Front Two Four Two, who were fan fucking tastic, and still are. I mean, I saw them just a couple of months ago here in Los Angeles. They're still amazing, um, and they were hugely. I don't know if I would say they're influential, but they were a band that we loved, and they were motivating, if you like, because they were playing very hardcore, very electronic music. And it was very obvious there was a market for that, and people looked, and it was great. I mean, they were the first really hardcore dance electronic band for that type. 
And the Young Gods were played against them as well. And we, we did some shows of the Young Gods, and they were blisteringly brilliant live. I mean, if you have you ever seen them live? Yes, I saw them live. They were so I went to see, I think it was Silverfish was supporting them in North London somewhere. I have to say it was a bit, I was the crowd was quite edgy and a bit dark, actually. I was a bit of an indie kid, so you could imagine I felt a bit sensitive. Mm. You know, there was a sort of an undercurrent which was quite fierce. I think they were, I thought I was wondering about some of the fans. They looked a bit sort of um extreme, slightly of the right. Really? Yeah. Not in Europe. Yeah, not in Europe at all. But this was in London, like, and I just remember. Yeah, that. Yeah, okay. In in Europe, it's a whole different ballgame. We played in Switzerland with them, which is home territory for them, and that was fantastic. And they're they are amazingly great live, phenomenal. And and at that point, that time was around when Lou Rouge was coming out, and uh, the Young Gods play Kurt Vile. Oh, September albums. song. That was the yeah, song. wonderful, absolutely amazing stuff. Yes. Uh, and live they're incredible because you know like you listen to the record and i i know a lot of <laughs> lots of people who are my friends who had listened to the record and loved it and then went to see them live and were shocked because there was no guitar player because the records are like so metal almost and and live it's just a drummer a keyboard player and a singer and everything is samples just triggered samples and it's and it's just this wall of noise um and it's fucking great i mean i love the young gods Oh, oh, so there was several there was shows with them and Meat Beat yeah. Manifesto, and also there's a band that I loved called The Sound as well, which was on. The Sound, oh yeah, also very did very very well in Germany and Belgium. And I would imagine amazing yeah. band actually. So yeah, did that really mean good. that you, with with your sort of early years, have you managed to sort of keep hold and ownership of your music at that, this stage, or? Um, that's a good point. I mean, we we got all the rights back to all the Ruska records and all the early stuff we did. We own the rights to those. And we own the rights to the last couple of records we did, but the Play It Again sound rights are still with Play It Again sound, which has is a bone of some contention. Uh, I would love to have all of the rights back to all of our records so I could remaster and, and redo them all. Uh, because, you know, like these days, I have all the equipment I always ever wanted. Uh, back then, back then we were like... We were struggling with whatever we could find secondhand, you know, um, and so we've we've gone th- we've remastered a bunch of the old records already. Um, though, having said that, I'd love to remaster them again now. <laughs> uh, um, yes, but um, but yeah, there's been there's there's our, the situation we're playing against Sam. And the thing is, playing against Sam signed a lot of great bands back then. And all of those bands, uh, some of them are very good friends of mine, all of those bands have ended up with serious legal issues with Played Against Sam over the last years, unfortunately. Uh, and Played Against Sam, are, they're a little silly about it because they really should sort the shit out with, with a lot of the bands. Because a, a lot of those bands, they, I mean, Played Against is a, is a big enterprise these days. It does, they did very well. Yes. But... Um, but uh, and those of us who helped them get there, you know, at least deserves some consideration. I think. But I know it's, it's a record company. What are you going to do? They're the enemy. <laughs> <laughs> I know it's a bit tricky, isn't it? Really, but um, yeah, I know a few bands have really got stuck. And there was an amazing documentary the other day. Well, there's, a, there's a film out on a band called Rima Rima from 1979 mm-hmm. to 1980, who only lasted a very short period of time. There's a member of Renegade Soundwave and there's also Marco Peroni in it. But it was right, a lovely moment because that audience. was, there was, yes. Yeah. And uh, 
the, the, this guy's decided to be to make a film about this band who 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 didn't even release a record when they were existing. They only released it afterwards, and then they released a, an EP, and then they found other material and they've released that as well. But they were the first band on four AD records, basically. And um, there was a lovely yeah. shot where they go to the vaults and pick up the little. There's all the cassettes of four AD, you know the you know t- master tapes, and there's Rima Rima yeah, yeah. there. They're ones, and it's a lovely thing—the the master tapes that sort of exist in some vault somewhere. Mm-hmm. So, um, yes, I had that EP. We like the roses by Rima Rima. Rima Fantastic Rima. record. What you're gonna I love listened this. to? It was a great record. I, I, that was something I listened to a lot back then when it came out. Yes, well, you're gonna love the film when it when you get managed to get to see it because it's it's a bit of a classic actually with Dorothy Max Pryor on drums. So, um, there you go. She was in Throbbing Gristle as well. So, um, it's good stuff. Oh, it's wow. good. Yes. I was I a huge Throbbing Gristle fan. I still have a, a copy of Industrial News that I got in 1976 when I was a little kid. Right. What about Can? Oh, huge Can fan. Can were one of the biggest influences on me as a teenager. I loved Can. Really amazing. I mean, one of the great things when I was growing up in Northern Ireland, the library, I loved uh, my little village. I grew up in this village in the middle of nowhere, but, the, but there was a great library. And the library had a rec- uh, a record library as well. They had, they had a whole bunch of records sitting in a centralized library somewhere in Northern Ireland. And you could order the records you want and get them sent to you. So I used to order all these. Everything that I read about that was at all interesting in sounds or NMA, I would order it in the library and just take it home and listen to it. So um, uh, like Flow Motion by Can was, was one of those records and it was a masterpiece. And uh, I've still I've got a can box set. Actually, the very first date I ever went on with the woman who is now my wife, she she gave me a can box set uh, as a present for my birthday. Uh, just I started to date her, which may well be why she's now married to me. Um, <laughs> so, yeah, can were hugely influential. Craftwork were hugely influential. I mean, we were listening to a lot of European bands. So I guess it's no surprise that European bands took European audiences took to it because we were and gone were like huge influence um in the, the early rec- gong records um you know we, we love gong can craftwork daff huge hugely influential bands. yes absolutely listen to all those bands so so as the as that decade progressed because your your narrative is going to be a bit different because I was a bit of an indie kid to be honest in the mm-hmm. 80s so I loved my you know indie pop jingly jangly pop which was like obviously the Smiths were my favorite band and from 83 the Smiths were hugely you know there but then sort of the music scene changed so much because a lot of bands they have a five year narrative they get together they form, they have that single, they have the John Peel play, the John Peel session first album, they get their little transit band, they go around the country because every city and town in the UK has an alternative night, don't they? And then the second, third album, and then it's kind of going. And also drugs start to change, don't they, in the late 80s. Ecstasy comes in, people suddenly want their sound. And also there's another wave of 16 or 18-year-olds who appear who want to sort of discover a new sound. So what was what's your kind of narrative? Because obviously that's kind of quite different, isn't it? And you've got this whole... Totally. We, had a comp- we, we deliberately wanted a completely different narrative. Um, we never, we didn't want, I mean, I, I, I didn't listen to indie pop, jingly jangly pop. I can't, I can't stand it. Can't stand Brit pop at all. Uh, <laughs> Andy, who's my partner of the band, is a huge fan of bands like the Smiths. Um, 
and, and now works with Johnny Marr. Um, so if you if you interview Andy from the Cassandra Complex, you'll see a very different narrative than you will from me, even though we're we've been best friends for our whole lives. Well, there's a very different approach. And that's actually one of the reasons why the Cassandra Complex is the way it is, because we have those two very different kind of influences that cross over. Um, but we never wanted to have that narrative. We weren't, we, you know, I don't take drugs. I've never taken drugs. We were totally straight edge. Um, uh, I, I don't even drink alcohol, you know. And and for a long time, even, um, uh, we banned alcohol uh, backstage. And we still ban drugs backstage. We don't allow that at any of our concerts because for us, it's about, it's a job. Uh, and I saw so many of my friends and colleagues get fucked up on drugs and alcohol, a lot of them. Um, so that now I'm, I'm very opposed to to that attitude whatsoever. I don't like hanging around with druggies. And, and most musicians who take a lot of drugs, I find very, very boring. I understand why they do it. It's a combination of fear and boredom. You know, and a lot of people think that oh, it must be really sexy and exciting sitting backstage taking drugs with the band. It's the most boring thing in the world. It's yeah. really fucking boring. Um, and um, but a lot of musicians take it because they're they they suffer from terrible anxiety or stage fright, or and there's nothing else to do, and so they 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 numb the pain. You know, and also, I, I saw a documentary with about Nine Inch Nails or Trent, and he, you know, his insecurity mm -hmm. levels, and then his kind of rise to that kind of level of kind of stardom. I suppose. I mean, it, I think it just destroyed him at that point. I mean, he's yeah, got himself absolutely. sorted now. But there is an amazing amount of peer pressure and you know anxiety mm -hmm. that gets masked with this kind of need to medicate, yep. um, self medication. Mm -hmm. So I think that's that's, and then the habit forms, and then. It's it's all over, isn't it? Let's face it; it's all mm -hmm. going to go. It's going to end in tears. Yeah, I mean, some people do function on it, okay. Um, but and, yeah, I don't want to mention any names, but I know lots of people who've had significant problems, and it's it's not pleasant. No, it's not a good thing, and it's 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 not exciting, and it's not cool, and it's not sexy. It's just really fucking boring. <laughs> I mean, there's nothing more boring in the world than being the sober guy surrounded by a bunch of people who are drunk and dr on and drugs. It's like it's just like fuck off. You know, <laughs> I got better things to do with my life. Um, so you know, no, you know, like I, 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 you know, like I remember, like many years later, um, I was working for uh, a music technology company called Steinberg. We made Cubase, which is the world's first ever virtual recording software. And, and I was I was backstage with a very well-known band who were contemporaries of ours and who were doing a lot better. And, and I was talking to one of the musicians. And he was like, oh, my God, Rodney, uh, I'm so jealous of you. And I'm like, why are you jealous of me? You're, we're backstage. You've got hundreds and hundreds of people waiting outside for you. Um, you've got everything. He says, yeah, but you were smart. You know, we used to think you were really you were really boring because you'd be when we were taking drugs and getting drunk, you were sitting playing around with computers. And now here you are, you're like the vice president of a tech company and I'm still playing the guitar and, it, and, I, and I really hate it. I hate my life. I hate my life. I've been spending, I've spent 20 years playing to music I don't like anymore to people I don't appreciate. And, 
And I'm like, well, that's an interesting perspective, but there you go. Yes, absolutely. And how were you coping at this stage? Because obviously the band was changing members and people coming in, mm. people going. How was that yeah. kind of affecting the, you know, the, the different sort of work that you were doing? Um, yeah, that's a great question, actually. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm the only person who's been in the band from the beginning um, constantly. It's basically me and other people around me, realistically. But it's still not it's not a solo project. It is me and other people. And and that's changed throughout the years. Though I funny enough, I mean, like Andy, Andy both spent a few years away from the band because he decided to go off and get a real job, as smart people do. You know, we you know, back in the day when we started. You could make a pretty good living as a mid-range band. You know, we 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 toured. I mean, I made I would did nothing but play music for 17 years. 17 years. Um I lived just off the music I made, which is 16 years more than most bands do. Um, but it was still tricky because you're living hand to mouth, you know, you're you you're not you're you you do not have you don't have paid time off and uh and holidays and uh and a pension scheme you know unfortunately you should do but mm. we didn't because you're living on whatever you can get and you're making music and doing gigs just to stay alive and that can get extremely tedious it's a job you know when it, when it becomes a job like any job it doesn't matter how great it is it becomes tedious when you have to do this thing or or you're in or you're in trouble. So so one thing we had we realized from the beginning, right, was that we didn't want to be we 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 were we were very much punk motivated. You know, like okay, let me let me rewind slightly. When I was <clears throat> first deciding to make a record, I didn't know how to do it. You know, these days you can go on the internet, watch a YouTube video, read an article, whatever. Back then nobody knew how to make a record. So I, I had I had a record from the first uh, EP from Scritti Politi, Skank Block Bologna, Scritti Politi, great record. And on the back of that record, they told you there was a whole, the whole back sleeve of the record in very small type. They went through the process of how they made the record and what they needed to do and who you needed to talk to and what pressing plant they pressed it on and where they'd recorded, they'd recorded it and blah, blah. And, and a breakdown of how much they paid for every part of it. And this was like, wow suddenly somebody is telling me how to make a record you know and and it had a phone number at the bottom and said for more information call this number and i'm like okay well i'll call this number maybe it's a musician's union or something and and someone answered the phone and i said hey you know i was looking at the back of skank blanc bologna and i wanted more information making a record and it turns out it was green Gartside's home number and <laughs> he put his number on the record and was really shocked that someone had called him up about it and so he spent the next two hours telling me everything I needed to make a record. And this was like, wow. So thank you, Green Guard side. <laughs> it was all, all your fault. Um, so so we decided from the beginning, we were going to do everything, like production, marketing, and manufacturing, the whole nine yards. We would handle everything. Um, and we did. And and we never had a manager. We never, we've had, we've got a tour agent, but we've always managed ourselves. And we did our own contracts and everything else. So, so what we then did was we parlayed that knowledge into other fields. So I had taught myself how to make records, how to work in the studio and use computers and sequencers. So I, so I, got, 
started working in the music technology business, helping to design and market music software for other musicians, you know, and, and create, make things easier for everyone. Mm. And, and Andy was doing all the business stuff. So he went off and got a law degree and became a lawyer. And now he's a very successful music business lawyer. Uh, and and so on. So everybody in the band parlayed what we had into a real job that's all sort of music adjacent, if you like. And that's what we still do. Yes. Um, and that's why we, you know, we took we've taken long breaks at different periods because we've been just really involved in our other careers. Too involved to actually. Anyway, these days when we make records, it costs us money because we make less money making records than we do doing other stuff around making records. Um, so that's why there's there's a lot of gaps and there's a lot of lineup changes and so on through the period. Having said you... that, though, I mean the current lineup has been together for twenty years, so that's again fifteen years longer than most bands make. Yes. So uh... it was just in your in your sort of that eighties to early nineties period. You know, mm. like it was the you know that was the classic. You know, almost an album a year. But then mm. you know when you did your the Satan Bugs Bunny one, you had quite a major change of lineup at that stage. The yeah, I mean, album, and I just wondered what that was like. You know, having a you know having losing members. It was members. hard. Yeah, it was really hard. I mean, uh, it was it was emotionally hard because um, Andy and well, Paul had already left before. Uh, and again, the weird thing is that even though Paul was only in the band originally for a couple of years, he and I are still really good friends, and ended up he ended up rejoining the band and ended up moving into his house with him, like twenty years later. Um, so, uh, and, and Andy was out of the band for a few years, but was, we were still very friendly and we still very close friends. So, but emotionally it was difficult because I had depended on these guys, leaned on them and, uh, innovated this music in conjunction with them. So even though I knew I could do it myself, I didn't really, I, it felt sort of emotionally draining. It's like being a single parent, you know? It's like even if you break up with your wife, she's still, you know, got something to do with the baby. Nice. Um, so it can be emotionally quite difficult. And it was emotionally very difficult for me. Um, uh, yeah, it was, not, it, was, it was both a great period in my life and also a very difficult period in my life. And I had to go through a lot of, and again, I didn't bury myself in drinking drugs because I don't. So I, I, you know, there's a lot of issues. I mean, like, like, let me give you an example. When we used to tour, we used to take teddy bears on tour and furry animals. We used to buy furry, furry stuffed toys when we went on tour. And when their bus was full of stuffed toys. And it was a big joke. And we'd play with them. You know, we were stuck in a traffic jam. We put on puppet shows <laughs> out the window of the tour bus for the kids going past, which was great. But it was also important because you need that kind of emotional support and you don't get it. You know, you don't get that emotional support. You don't have a family with you. You don't, you can't just switch off and go home and watch, watch the TV. Um, it can be really soul destroying. It can be very, very emotionally intense. Yeah. Uh, and so you need that kind of support network around you. And that's something that not a lot of musicians talk about, but there are a lot of very, a lot of musicians have very serious mental issues. But it's not sexy to talk. It's not cool to talk about that. But it's true. A lot of musicians are very, very emotionally broken or emotionally fragile 
or have mental health problems because it is a very, very unhealthy state of affairs to be that way. You know, the first time I got back from our first really major tour, I went back to my house in Leeds and I was sitting on the sofa and thinking, I'm really hungry now. And then I just sat there because I was used for the previous six months. If I was hungry, someone just brought me food. There was food everywhere. Everybody I met was there because of me. Mm. You know, there's there's the you know there's the promoter, there's the a cook, there's a runner, you know, there's a third bus driver. Um, everybody you meet is there to give you stuff and tell you how great you are, and that's fucking great until it's over, and then you realize like. I just sat there like, wait a minute, I've got to actually get up and get something to, <laughs> to, to eat. I'll, oh yeah, really weird. So I went to the, so I went to the local shop to get some food, got some food, got to the counter, then realized I hadn't brought any money with me because for six months I hadn't I, I'd forgotten to carry money because I didn't need to carry money when I was on tour because everything was given to me, you know. And you've got to like, you know, got to get up and do the dishes. It's like <laughs> a big shock to the system, but an important one. Yes. And did and did Leeds, when you went back, did that feel like home or did it feel like an alienated place that you didn't understand anymore? The second, definitely. It definitely didn't feel like home anymore. Uh, now, the thing was, I wasn't from Leeds originally. None of us were. We'd all, we'd all, not, none of the band had actually grown up in Leeds. We weren't Leeds natives. We'd all yes. moved there in our late teens. And lived there in her early twenties. So by the time we were in the mid twenties, you know, it wasn't really home to me. So in the end, I ended up moving to Germany. And the reason for that was, was, well, originally it was purely financial because the problem with touring in Europe back then, because it was pre EU, is that, and it still is in a lot of cases for other bands, is that if you play a, a concert in a foreign country, they hold on to twenty percent of the gross takings as a withholding tax. So we were making 95% of our money in Germany, but every time we, we played a show in Germany or sold a record, they would call 20% of the fee back before we even saw it, which added up to a lot of money. That's the difference between profit and loss. Yes. So by moving to Germany and becoming a German resident, I could keep that 20%. And instead of having to pay the German government, I could pay it through my normal taxes, and then I could write that off with all my other expenses, which you can't do. So, so moving to Germany meant that I literally was making, uh, in overnight was making twice as much money as I was living in England, uh, more than twice as much. So, money. were you living when you came to do the the kind of sex and death uh, death 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 album? Was that was that you? Were you living in Germany at that stage? Or? I I had moved, I I'd spent a year in Germany, touring and playing. And then I came back to Leeds um, to recruit a new band, basically, because the band had broken up. So I came back to Leeds for a year and recruited a new band and did the Sex and Death album under very trying circumstances. Not, or not, not Sex and Death, Satan, Bugs, Bunny and Me album. And um, that's still our weakest album by a very long way. I mean, I, I can't listen to that album anymore. There's a couple of great songs on it, but I find it hard to listen to. Um, but it was a very trying time. And then we went back to Germany Back to Europe, toured Europe on the back of that album and did incredibly even better. Um, the weird thing was that the the revamp lineup was doing even better than the original lineup was. Um, and so then we did uh, um, 
sex and death and war, war against sleep sex and death and those were very successful records that was a, like our heyday yeah really um so when you came and to then do i moved back to germany for that yeah and on the sex and death did you feel that that was going to be the last album of the band would did that feel like no no not at all i've never felt that about any records we've done um we'd done war against sleep that was the first one we did in our new studio in hamburg and that was a great record in a lot of ways i mean that still has probably the best songs that i've ever written their songs on are spectacular because i'd i'd just broken up with my long-term girlfriend and i was absolutely i was an emotional wreck and so that whole album is all about that relationship with my girlfriend and the breakup and everything else. Uh, and I was in tears every night singing that record in the studio. You can hear me breaking out, breaking out sobbing in some of the songs. <clears throat> Unfortunately, though, um, although I think it's got some of the best songs and best playing, the production isn't as good as I would like it. I'd love to redo that album, actually, sometime, because the production isn't as good as it could have been. It's still a great record. Yes. Um, uh, um, but that record came out and it was really, really heartfelt. And then I was really upset because all the reviews, we got some, we got a lot of reviews, huge amount of reviews on, but a lot of the reviews were like, oh, the Cassandra Complex uh, are trying to go, are doing a pop record. It's like fake uh, plastic pop in order to try. And, and I'm like, what the hell are you people listening to? This is like the most authentically heartfelt record I've ever done. And I was so angry with that that um sex and death came out of a place of real anger it was like okay you want something hardcore let's give you something that's really hardcore let's go back and that's what it's called sex and death it's like let's get right down to the very basics sex and death that's what it's about and that's the most hardest most industrial rock album we ever did and nine inch nails had just been doing really well doing basically what we were doing and uh and i'm like fuck these guys are doing what we're doing. We can do it just as well as they can. So let's do a sec. Let's do an album that's that's that kind of really hard industrial guitar noise. Yes, absolutely. My God, and that, so you that must, was born out of real frustration. So you must have thought at this stage, this is it. We we were on on the sort of the zeitgeist, but then there's a break. Yeah, what? I mean, yeah, there was a long break. I mean, basically, it was just exhaustion. Um, because by that stage, I'd been pretty much on tour uh, and, and in the studio for 10 years or something. Yeah, nearly 10 years. I think Sex and Death came out in like 93, I think it was. And I was just emotionally and physically wrecked because I'd been um, just doing this nonstop every day for years and years and years and years and running the whole business and running the whole what was a company i mean i had like 14 people working for me back then you know it was basically running a company uh, on my own um uh, or you know without any real management or anything like that we were doing it all, all ourselves so it was it was a lot of a lot of work um and uh, and so I decided to take a little bit of time off and do some other stuff. I needed the break. I needed just to to do something else and straighten my head out. And I did a I did a record, a solo record called Sun God, which is still one of my favorite records, which was like the antithesis of the Cassandra Complex. No guitars, uh, no no uh, 
hammering drum machines and electron and sequences and stuff like that. I did a completely different record, which was really, really good, but um I just needed the break. I needed to do something else. Yes. Uh, and 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 so that was that. And also we were getting at the stage then after that break, I was really thinking a lot about where we were going and what we were doing. Because, you know, as you probably gathered by this interview, you know, I really think very deeply about about everything we're doing. It's not just a question of pick up a guitar and play a song. Um, and and I was starting, the MP3 thing was starting to happen. The computer revolution was really starting to happen big time. And I was fascinated by that. Uh, and so I got involved. I started working for Steinberg on Cubase and Noendo in the first digital audio programs and virtual studio technology. And I ended up um, touring the world with Steinberg, um, basically teaching people how to make music. Right. Uh, and that was very much part of, again, part of the whole sort of punk ethos that we always had. You know, we always called ourselves cyberpunks because we we were electronic, but we still had that punk ethos, the do-it-yourself, the, the scritty-politty, how to make a record on the back of an album kind of thing. And I really felt that I needed, uh, in a way, paying that back. So I ended up literally touring the world for years and years and years, doing loads of conferences and lectures and how musicians could use computers to record and build home studios and, and make records. And and that's what I, that was my career for a very long time. I ended yes. up lecturing in music technology at a college uh, as well. So, so what, what was your moment or what? how did you suddenly respond to the illegal download, you know, to the, the whole piracy thing that happened? Because I, I was watching a... I'm, I, I was completely in favour of it. Completely in favour of it. Because I was watching um, this documentary on Beats with Dr. Dre and Jimmy Iovine, and they were like doing yeah. really well, and they developed and individually, and then they were sort of slightly, yeah, still individual before, and then this kind of like, oh my god, you know, they had Death Row, wasn't it, and Interscope, and you know, sure, like yeah. all those mega sort of rap artists, etc., cetera, etc., cetera, right. Nine Inch Nails, and then suddenly it's like, oh my god, the whole party's over, it's it's gone. I just wondered mm. what your response to that was. Was it one of worry and fear no not even slightly i thought it was great i still think it was great because you know <laughs> piracy in general wasn't really hurting the artists it was hurting the record companies you know i actually ended up writing this part this actually became my thesis when i did my i did a degree many years because I dropped out of university to start doing the Cassandra complex. So I did a degree many years later. And my degree thesis was literally about the subject uh, and about the history of digital audio and and um, and what was happening. And again, like, you know, the whole, do you remember home taping is killing music? Yes, I remember that. Campaign? <laughs> you know, like when cassettes were invented, record companies had this logo with it, well, the cassette was with a, like yes. a cross bones, like a skull and crossbones. And they had this big campaign, home taping is killing music, uh, about how cassettes were going to destroy the music industry. Uh, and then 20 years later, they're saying, well, MP3s are going to destroy the music. Wait a minute, weren't you telling us 20 years ago this was already going to be destroyed? Um, you know, uh, and of course it didn't. Home taping did not kill music because I bet your, your ass, you like me, had plenty of cassettes of John Peel shows. Oh, millions. <laughs> exactly. That's what we all did back then. Yes. We recorded John Peel off the radio onto cassette. 
that's how and he, also that's how he and those weird records and also because uh, when you were talking about the record library i remember going to the record library and initially right. you'd have to pay five pound for the whole year you could just take out four but you'd take them you'd record them and the ones that you really liked you would then go actually i'm gonna buy the vinyl whereas the other ones right. you thought well i'll play it but i'm not really gonna buy i don't really love it so it's the like it's it's kind of exactly it, it's, exactly. Yeah, I mean, the, the piracy matter. theory, the piracy theory was based on the assumption that everything, every MP I download, MP3 I downloaded was a record I wasn't going to buy, which of course was bullshit. You know, I would go and download a thousand MP3s. Was I going to go out and buy a thousand CDs? Fuck no. You know? Yeah, but no, I was the but same. here's but let's look at the other side of the coin, right? Let's look. Do you remember when the CD was invented, right? Records, you know, when you made a record, it a vinyl twelve inch record. Vinyl twelve inch records are very expensive to make, and very expensive to store and transfer because they're big and they're heavy. And when the CD came out, it was brilliant for record companies because not only did you have something that was practically indestructible. It was about a tenth of the size and weight of a vinyl album, and it was cheaper to make. But CDs were selling for more expensive than vinyl, right? Yeah. But but the record companies were still paying the artists the same royalty that they were for vinyl, even though the CD cost was only half of what the vinyl was. So the record companies literally doubled their money overnight by selling CDs instead of vinyl. But they didn't give the artists any extra money. There was no campaign about CDs are killing musicians. No. No. The record company's just pocketed the extra cash. So it's when I saw MP3s coming in, I'm like, this is a nice way to redress the balance. As Corey Doctorow once said, my problem as a struggling artist is not piracy. My problem as a struggling artist is getting people to, to hear what I'm doing. Right. And yes. and streaming and do- downloading MP3s as it was back then and streaming now solves that problem. Right. Now it brings a, a lot of other problems with it, but it certainly solves that original and that's the most original problem most musicians have is getting heard. Right? Because it doesn't matter how much you're getting paid or not getting paid mm. if nobody cares about your music. If yeah. nobody knows who you are. It doesn't matter if they're getting your music for free or if they're paying 10 quid for it. If they don't know who you are, you're still not getting paid. Yes. And I think that's the thing about the 80s and possibly 90s and possibly 70s. But we had those. We had the gatekeepers. We had John Peel. We had the three mm-hmm. weekly music papers. We also had people like Janice Long and Kid Jensen. And and that was kind of a right. network. And and that John Peel gig, I thought, was amazing. And like I mentioned, every city in town had an alternative indie night of some description mm-hmm. where you'd see those kind of lists now, don't you, from sort of 30, 40 years ago, where there'd be three bands for £2.50p. But, you know, yeah. people... People would be like legendary bands. Yeah, I know. Yes. Yeah, yeah, I get it. Yeah. So that was kind of that was kind of important, you know. So it was, but but life changes. But the thing is that that wasn't destroyed by MP3s. That was destroyed by record companies getting greedy. Yeah. Jimmy. That's what destroyed that. And that that was the problem. That that, so I mean, but the thing was, yes, uh, that was one of the reasons why I didn't make a record for a very long time. Because once I saw the downloading thing happening, I realized this vector for me earning money 
is going away now. And it doesn't matter whether I like it or not. It doesn't matter whether I complain about it or not. It's going away. And that's just the way it is. And that's just the way it's going to be. And like, and the other thing was that I started thinking, well, what does an album even mean anymore? Because an album, when when we were kids, made sense. If an album was 20 minutes long, or 40 minutes long, because a vinyl record could hold 20 minutes of music on each side. Yes. So you had a 40-minute piece of... Uh, enough songs to make up 40 minutes, that was an album because that's what the physical medium could support. And then the CD came along and we started having bonus tracks and stuff because the CD could hold 70 minutes of music. Do you know why the CD holds 72 minutes of music? No, I don't. The original CD design from Philips was for a, a, a one-hour long uh, digital recording medium. And they brought it to Sony uh, and said, hey, who were big partners of Philips back then, and said, hey, we have this new medium that holds one hour of very good recorded music. And the president of Sony was a huge fan of Mahler. And his favorite Mahler symphony <laughs> was 72 minutes long. So he said, we'll support this if you can make it hold 72 minutes long, uh, uh, 72 minutes of music so I can hear my favorite Mahler music. And they were like, okay. And that's why the CD is 72 minutes long, because the president of Sony wanted it that way for right. his own personal enjoyment. And right. we just, it's um, much, yeah, it was much better having five tracks on each side of a record. So, well, whatever way it is. But anyway, but the album was, it was still a physical thing. So, what record companies got wrong was that they thought they were selling music. Record companies were never selling music, they were selling a medium to play music on. We made the music, record companies didn't. They yes. just made a piece of plastic. That's what record companies were selling. They were selling a piece of plastic. So as soon as you get rid of the piece of plastic, it, how, why do you need a record company when there ain't no record? That was the question that I was struggling with. And I still struggle with that question. Yes. Because the record company then, record companies basically became marketing and banking. That's what they do. They do they, they bank money and they, they loan you money at a terrible rate of interest. And then they market your music. And for a lot of people, that's a good deal. And for a lot of people, it isn't a good deal. but it's a very different business now than it was then. I seem um, to remember. I remember. Seem to remember. I think it was Carter, the Unstoppable Sex Machine, because they they had that sort of thing of like, oh, we still own our, we still owe about I don't know, a quarter of a million, no, three quarters of a million pound to the record company, so they're never going to be able to own their music again. Because, and I think the same happened with Age of oh, Charles. Yeah. Actually, you know, I think oh, it happened to like, everybody. It happened to yes. everybody. I mean, like the Backstreet Boys. Remember the Backstreet Boys? Yes. The Backstreet Boys started making a profit on their records after their third album. They had 20 number one hits or something before they made a penny. Everything else was owed to the record company. You remember those fabulous videos you used to see back in the 80s and early 90s? Oh, like yes. MTV videos. My friend, a very good friend of mine is Kevin Godley. He made loads oh, yes. of those great videos. Right, Kevin. Kevin made Two Tribes. Frank goes to Hollywood. He made um, Girls on Film for Duran Duran. He did uh, Paul McCartney. He did U two. He's done everybody. Right, and those videos were very, very expensive to make. And those bands, those bands were loaned the money to make those videos by the record company. Most bands didn't realize it, but the <laughs> videos they were making, they were paying for. Yes, and so many bands would make records and. And find out that you know, they get a hit single, and find out that the entire profits of the hit single 
went just to pay for the video. Yes, I think that's one. I remember Jim Bob suddenly realized when he got presented with this long list of all the expenses, like, oh my God, I didn't, I didn't, I thought you had just given that to oh, us. Yeah, yeah. yeah. <laughs> they were surprised, weren't they? Did you also write a book at this stage on Alistair Crowley? Was this? Yes, I did. Yeah. And that, um, I wrote that while I was on tour, actually, because I was so bored. So, like, what I used to do, because um, uh, I couldn't really talk because you know, as you may have gathered by now, I do like to, I enjoyed, I enjoy a chat. Um, but on tour, because I was touring and singing, every, we were doing like a one and a half hour, two hour show every night. I had to rest my voice during the day. So while we were on the bus, I would take, I would sit at the back of the bus. I had a flight case full of books and I would just, I would, and I, I, I speed read. I would read a book every day. Sometimes a couple of books every day, just on the back of the bus doing nothing um, and eventually even that got i read my way through all the books so i had one of the very being a computer nut i had one of the very 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 first portable computers ever right. made and um I, I took that on the back of the bus and i started writing a book um because as a kid i always wanted to be an author anyway so i started writing so i wrote that whole book uh while i was on tour on the back of the bus and yes. then put it out and it was a huge success um uh, it, I did originally on a small publishing label in Sweden run by my friend Carl Abrahamsson who was in a band called White Stains fabulous electronic band they did a brilliant record I highly recommend um, it's a Genesis PRH from Throbbing Gristle and White Stains they did an album called Live at Stockholm and it's uh, at Stockholm just called at Stockholm and it's a brilliant album anyway so Carl put that record out and um, or that book out, and it did really well. And then eventually, I signed it to a publishing company in America called Red Wheel Visor, very well known uh, major label company. And that book's still in print today, unbelievably. Yes, it's, it's never been out of print. It's some fourth edition now, seventeenth printing or something. I get the impression so, you did you didn't get into the black arts, did you? <laughs> well, it depends what you mean by the black arts. I mean, I I resent. I resent that term black arts in the first place and black magic because it's yes. a very racist term. It's, it's like terrible. black equals bad. It's like that's not a good that's not the that's not right. No, <laughs> you know, that's black not does right. not equal bad. But that's you know, so I was I I, I don't even use that like using that kind no. of terminology. I find it racist. But I didn't I can't remember, um, but I did I did interview somebody who mentioned when he was going through that 20-year-old period, they all got into the the, the world of Crowley and things, and yeah, well, realized... I, I got into that and, and still am. I mean, and and I was a very serious student of of Crowley's work and occultism in general. Yes. But from a very scientific perspective, don't get me wrong, I'm not one of these airy fairy kind of like you know believers in ancient aliens and all that kind of crap. No, it's it's for me, it's a very it's an interesting technology of <clears throat> self awareness and self discovery. Yes. And I, I I look at it from a from a sort of psychological and technological point of view, which is how I approach it in the book. So um, did you did you get into sort of people like um I don't know, Orgon Energy and Vilmar Vilmar Reich? Wilhelm Reich. Yes. Wilhelm Reich. Did he Orgon, come into well, your consciousness? Uh, funny you should mention that because we used to cover in the very early days when we when we first toured, we used to cover Orgon Accumulator by Hawkwind. Yes, um, classic. Which is a fabulous song. In fact, I'm thinking of 
I, I, we never recorded that. I, re- I was actually just thinking the other day, maybe should we, we should record that sometime because it's a great song. And we did was that a Robert Calvert program. song? Uh, it was Robert Calvert period, yes, of Hawkwind. I think right. it's on on the Space Ritual double live album. Yeah. The greatest double live album ever recorded by mankind. Space Ritual by Hawkwind. Um, so yeah, Robert Calvert was a huge influence to me growing up as well. Do you remember that Mark Boland used to have a TV show? Mark. Back in the 80s called Mark, yeah. I watched that religiously as a kid. And he did, uh, David Bowie was on that show with him. It was That was the first time I discovered um, David Bowie. Poor old Mark. And Hawkwind. Yes, and Hawkwind were on that show as well, doing Silver Machine, I think it was at one point, with Bob Calvert. And I, I still I still remember Bob Calvert wore the flying helmet. He was wearing a flying helmet, and he had a, like a stuffed goshawk on his arm playing the guitar. It's fucking great. I'm like, this, I want to be like that. I don't you know, and Yeah, so that was, yeah. That Mark Boland show with David Bowie and Hawkwind was was a major formative influence on everything, yes. on the look, feel, uh, songwriting style, everything that I do was that was a pivotal moment. So when we were worried about the, uh, the 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 Millennium Bug, is this when you decided to bring the band back together? You know the the Millennium Bug period. Uh, well, I had I had moved to. The U.S. Actually, the first time I was living in Los Angeles, uh, working out here on, on a techno- on a technology job, and for the first time in years, I had stopped touring the world because even though I wasn't touring with my band, I was touring uh, in the uh, in the music tech industry. So I basically hadn't been off the road in twenty years. Um, I remember my girlfriend one time telling me that she, I needed I needed to spend more time with her. I'm like, what do you mean? I'm with you all the time when I'm home. And, she's, and then she pointed out that she'd, 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 she'd opened up her calendar and pointed out that I'd been on the road 250 days of that year out of 365 days. I had been traveling for 250 of them. That's how much touring I was doing. And that's what I did for 20 years. Uh, and so eventually it was just like, I need to slow down a little bit here. Um, and so I moved to Los Angeles. It was nice and sunny. I had a nice big, uh, I had this, I had this penthouse apartment that I managed to get by complete mischances with this huge room. And I was like, this is going to be great for making a record. Let's make a record. So I started doing wetware, um, with Volker who had been touring with us, um, from sex and death period. So the band was basically at that period was just me and Volker. And so, uh, I wrote most of wetware in Los Angeles, and then went back to Germany for a couple of months, doing some work over there, and met up with Falker, and we he put his parts on, and we, we made the record, and that was Wetware, which is right. a great record. And, and did that, that was feel... kind of like, um, yeah. And Sorry. did that feel good to be back and making a record again with the Cassandra Project? Yeah, it complex? felt absolutely great, and we were, it really felt great. I mean, it was weird because I hadn't sat down and just written some songs in so long, um, and then we started playing again and discovered that people still really loved us because I was like, who knows? I mean, we hadn't done a record in six years, seven years. Yes. Uh, and I'm like, people have probably forgotten who we are, but it turned out we, we started playing a couple of gigs and people loved it. So we started, and then we we got asked to play lots of festival shows and we, and we ended up headlining festivals again all across Europe. And we were like, okay, this is cool. And it was, it was really fun. And it was great that the audience remembered us. And 
a whole lot of new people who had never heard of us before suddenly realized, wow, this band are great. And it felt like, it felt, you know, one of the reasons why we're called the Cassandra Complex is because Cassandra uh, was the Trojan priestess who could always, who was cursed by the god Apollo to always foretell the future, but no one would believe her. So the Cassandra Complex was like a joke about ourselves because we kept telling everybody we were going to make this music of the future and people just thought we were crazy. You know, so it was kind of like it's it's a it's a form of psychological craziness. Yes. So we really it really felt like because we had just stopped, the worst of the world had finally caught up with us. Um and they people actually understood what we were doing now. And it was much easier, if you like, um, than it had been earlier because everything that we had been um innovating was now acceptable, was now normal. Um, and so that felt really good to, to, to be able to say, I told you so, um, <laughs> you know, because that always feels good. Yes. Uh, yeah. Which it's was kind of bringing of you great... to the, the latest album, what came out earlier this year, because this this one is politically really full on and fierce, isn't it? You've, you've got you've got quite a lot of people in your sights, haven't you, to attack? Yes. And that's great that you recognize that. I mean, yeah, I mean, that's the other thing is like. You know, the, the the traditional sort of viewpoint is that people mellow as they get older. And, you know, and and, and also, you know, for years I've been hearing that people get more right wing as they get yes, older. Yes, I was going to and say, we, they they don't mellow. They become, you know, like Roger Daltrey. Right wing. Star, that's actually not Morrissey. true. It turns out that's not true. What actually happens is the reason why, if you look at any statistical analysis, Yes, the statistical analysis says that more people are right wing as they get older than are than there are more more a higher percentage of people, old people are more right wing than young people. And you know why that is? It's not because people get more right wing as they get older. It's because working class people tend to be more left wing and rich people tend to be more right wing. But rich people live longer than poor people. Poor people in, in the UK die on average 12 years sooner than rich people right 12 yes. years and that's why the percentage of older people who who are right wing is higher it's because the left wing people are already dead <laughs> yes that is which is a sobering thought so people do not get more right wing as they get older that's not true it's just that the more left wing people die sooner yeah um, so anyway, so and 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 I've just got more bitter as we get older. I mean, and there's a lot to be bitter about. So um Yes. And, I mean, I I mean and another great hero of mine, Neil Young. If you, you know, Neil Young's always been an inspiration because if you look at Neil Young, Neil Young gets more aggressive and political every year that, that passes by. And God love him. And uh and we kind of feel the same. And there was yeah, I mean, so with the new album, I mean, we we recorded that in the middle of the COVID lockdown, uh, and with uh, twelve years of conservative rule in the UK, we I was back living in the UK by this stage, and so I mean, lived I lived in the UK for the last few years, and the UK in the last few years has just been a shit show, um, and the the current conservative government are a pile of completely useless, corrupt assholes um public school idiots 
Uh, and so, yeah, so we we went for it. Yes, uh, we went, I... went. We we went for the throat, uh, and and rightly so. I know. Um, I was I was very you know I was like oh yes this is this is definitely this is definitely somebody who's who's been watching and reading the papers and feeling quite angry with everything that's going on mm. so I was quite um yeah. I was impressed well normally people don't though do they they you know you know look at my you know Morrissey I mean you know he's come out with some oh, I'd rather not look at Morrissey I'd rather not look at Morrissey I mean that's a, that's a perfect example of a complete failure of a human being um, yes and that's but the that's... thing is I mean he hasn't got more right wing as he got older he always was right wing he just doesn't hide it as much now but he's yes. basically a full full on Nazi, you know. It's like <laughs> I mean, I feel really sorry for Johnny Moore. I mean, imagine having to be associated with that hanging around your neck for the rest of your career. Jesus yes. Christ. It is tricky. But then, you know, there's quite a few other people who got confused with Brexit, like Roger Daltrey and people like that. So Well, Roger Daltrey's always been hardline conservative. Always. From from the sixties. He hasn't again. He hasn't got more right wing as he got older. I mean, like the Who are really are a really interesting example of a band who hate each other. They hate. They literally. I mean, and I I know the guy who used to tour manage them, and he was saying like they literally have fist fights backstage before each show. Yes, the whole band. They're like literally punching each other because they hate each other so much. And Pete Townsend and Roger Daltrey do not get on. They're violently opposed to each other in just about everything. He's yeah. a great singer, don't get me wrong. I think Roger Daltrey is a spectacularly good vocalist, but what a failure of a human being. Yes. So with your sort of, with lockdown, obviously you're in the UK, then you've gone back to LA, you've got this new album out. How have you managed them to juggle all these little, you know, quite major moments in life? Because this is, this is you know, a lot to take on. Yeah, and it, yeah. I mean, I've always, I've been a travelling man. I mean, the one great thing is, as James Joyce pointed out, uh, Ireland's greatest export has always been its people. Um, and, you know, everywhere you go, this way, it's Irish pubs everywhere. I, I, Irish people, they're wild, wild rovers, you know, like, that's why all all the great Irish songs are all about, you know, people being in foreign lands and missing Ireland. Um, yes. Uh, but, and, but, with, but with this particular recording, did you do it all individually and then just send the files over? Yes and no. I mean, how we because of COVID, we had to like figure out a new way of working. And so, um, how I, without getting too boringly technological, how I figured it out was that um, uh, Axel, uh, Axel, who is a keyboard player, has a studio in, in Hamburg, and I had a studio in London, and Andy had a little home studio in Manchester. And so, I set up each of us with an identical configuration of computers and software and everything else. And then we also ha all had video cameras and a video conferencing system. So when Andy was going to record, I would like get the back and we would each do some back and tracks or whatever. And then everybody would they we have a shared um, drive online and it all duplicates all the tracks to everyone automatically. So as soon as someone writes a backing track or anything, it appears in everyone else's computers automatically. And then we just order parts to it. And then we video conference while we're doing it. So even though I can't, we we can't play together. We never really played together. Most people don't play together in the studio anyway. They do the yes. work separately. So I will I'll watch Andy record his guitar and listen to it, 
and I can tell instantly whether it's good, bad, or right, or wrong, or whatever. And then a few seconds later, it appears on my machine right in front of me, and I can hear exactly what it sounds like in my speakers. So it's no different than if we were in a conventional studio and I was in the control room and he was in the live room. We'd still be looking at each other through a window anyway. My God, you've so, got the best technology there, haven't you? I don't think anybody else is that advanced that I've spoke to. It was a bit more lumpy. That's what I do for a living. So, that's what you yeah, do for yeah, a living. I, yeah, no, it, it yeah. sounds like you, no, you've taken stuff. it to a different level, haven't you? Because most people yeah. were recording their bit and then sending it to a, a producer who tried to make it sound yeah, like they were it. We do it almost live together. So we're we're together while we're doing it all the time. Uh, and and that was great in lockdown, actually, because we had no distractions. We, had, we couldn't do anything else. We couldn't go anywhere. We couldn't go to work. We were all working at home anyway. Um, so that lockdown became a big advantage uh, rather than a big disadvantage in that sense. Because yes. it gave us time to just sit down and go, okay, no distractions. Let's make a great record. Uh, and, and that comes across really well. And, and I spent fucking ages mixing that record because I had my own place and I never left the house. So I had, I luckily just before lockdown, I built a studio in a shed in, in the backyard of my house. And it was very nicely, and I had all the studio finished just as lockdown started. And I'm like, okay, this is fine now. I'm just <laughs> going to stay here for the next couple of years and, and make a record. And that's what we did. Yes. And um, your, and the artwork is a slight, it sounds, feels like it's quite a, a slight different direction, doesn't it? Did you did you have that? The artwork sort of... was done by a friend of mine called Anthony Johnson, who is one of the best writers in the. He's actually a writer. Um, do you know the movie Atomic Blonde? Have you seen that movie with Charlene Theron? Sounds it's familiar. Wonderful movie about eighties Berlin spy movie. Oh, it's a masterpiece. You got to see. And if you like eighties music, I mean, it's got a soundtrack which is perfect. It's uh, Charlene Theron and uh, James Purify. Is it? Um, I think. Yes. Um, no, and um, uh, the guy that plays Professor X in uh, X Men First Class, um, wonderful movie. Anthony wrote that, and he's he wrote he's written a bunch of new spy thrillers, and he's he, he writes spy thrillers basically. Great writer, really great writer. But he started as a graphic artist, and he's a big fan of the Cassandra complex. So he, uh, we actually met up, and were hanging out. And he asked if he could do a cover for us because he really wanted to do a cover and he wanted to get back into doing some graphics. So he and I, you know, shot the shit and he came up with that cover and I think it was it was great. Yes, no, it's um, good. It, it was, you know, it just has a slightly different vibe to it than the previous yes, ones. Yes, and we, well, we wanted that. We wanted a slight. I mean, one of the things we wanted for the albums we wanted it to be very obviously a Cassandra Complex album. It had to have be a classic sort of. Cassandra complex vibe of guitars, synthesizers, heavy drum machines, you know, the whole nine yards. But we also wanted to say, this is not just, we, we never wanted to be one of these bands that just, you know, becomes a cabaret version of themselves, which so many bands from the 80s and 90s are now doing. They just tour until they become cabaret acts. You know, I remember like a kind of a tribute a, a to themselves. A tribute, yeah, they become tribute bands to themselves. Yeah, we never <laughs> wanted that. Yeah, uh, and so, and so we said, well, it's got to be a whole album of completely new songs, and very much our style. But it has to be new, new songs, and it has to be really strong and powerful and vibrant, and it has to be relevant. That's one of the reasons why it's so political. We didn't want to just make an album of like 
hey, here's us again, trotting out the same old shit that we did 20 or 30 years ago. Mm. Maybe it, it has to be relevant to today. Otherwise, there's no point. Uh, and so with the cover, we had the same kind of approach. We wanted it to, to harken back to the kind of covers we did before. But we also wanted to be completely new. So that's why like, there's still like the, 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 the ring of stars from the European flag, which we, we were using all the way back when we did Hello America, like the second album. Yes. Um, um, we, we've used, and we used to, um, oh, hang on, my computer's, oh, my phone's trying to talk to me. Quiet <laughs> phone. Um, and, you know, we used, to, when we used to play live back in the early days, we used to have European flags up as a backdrop um, because that, a European identity was very important for us. So, one of the things we want on the new one, especially because of the Brexit thing, is we wanted to have that European that circle of stars from the European flag very heavily featured on the artwork. And that's why it's blue and it's got the, the gold stars and everything. Because uh, we wanted to say, yeah, well, you may be doing Brexit, but we're still European. Yes, um, absolutely. What font did you use for the lettering? Because that's quite sort of a sh quite a, a sharp font, actually. God, I'm talking about fonts now, aren't I? Sorry about that. <laughs> <laughs> Very anorakic. I can't even remember. I mean, we used to use, originally we used ITC Benguia as the original Cassandra Complex font, which later got used by Stranger Things <laughs> and Stephen King. Right. Um, actually, we, I think we were the first people to really like use that as a big promo font. Was ben ITC Benguia. Great font. Yes, amazing. Um, we were thinking of using that again. We were thinking of using ITC Ben-Guyat again because we were using that since 85. But because of Stranger Things, we were like, people just think we're trying to be like Stranger Things. Um, so yes. it was kind of, kind of odd that that it was made more famous by people that came 20 years later who were ripping it off from us in the first place. So, yeah. So with 2023 um, just around the corner, did you say you've got a new single coming out and you've got a live date in yeah. Germany next summer? Yep, we've got a new. Oh, we've got a new. Well, we're doing. Um, I've just done a remix version of Hotline for El uh, to Elvis from the last album. Classic, and that. Yeah, I mean the new version is even better than the version on the album. Um, so uh, I'm really happy with it. Really happy with it. It's even more powerful and danceable now. Yeah. Um, so that's coming out on February 9th, I think, is the plan. Um, actually, I need to get that uploaded and ready next week sometime and get the artwork ready on that one so uh, and there will be a new album next year of all goes as planned which is if you look in the background of the video that we're shooting at the moment um you can see the microphone stand up here where I'm, and then yes. i've got the lyrics from the new album right there because i'm literally putting down guide vocals for the new album in this room as we speak um so hopefully if all goes as planned there'll be a new album by the summer and maybe another album before the end of the year. Maybe two albums next year. So we're he... really, really... I mean, the, the success of The Plague has really fired us up again, and we're just, like, kicking ass now. Yes. Uh, and then we're playing uh, Mira Luna Festival in Germany in August. Uh, that's the first confirmed show. We'll, we'll, we'll be doing other shows in the summer. I'm trying to get a show in the UK. I mean, we did play the UK last summer, we did Infest Festival in Bradford, and that's the first UK date we've done in about 10 years. Yes. Uh, I would like to play the UK again next year, but it's just a matter of where and when. Uh, and did you hear we'll the, the the latest album by um, KMFDM? I always say that so slowly. KMFDM. 
Yes, that's better. Um, much better. I have not heard it. No, not yet. I just wondered if you there was a really good there was a very good dub track on the last track out the last track on side two, if such a thing exists. I just wondered if you'd heard it and um was kind of curious with the band. Know. And um yes. Now, that's, um, a, that's another industrial band from Hamburg. But ironically, again, KMFDM is kind of they're like the reverse of us in that they're a German band, but they're much more successful in the US than they are in Germany. I mean they do okay in Germany, but they're they really had their big sort of breakthrough in, in the USA. Yes. And what's so America just, like for the band, for your band? Better than the UK. <laughs> we've toured here a couple of times. Yes. And we've done quite a few shows here back in the day. We we did a tour with Front 242 uh, about, I don't know, 10 years ago, 15 years ago. And that was great. That was a really great tour. About so one thing, the one thing I've noticed with bands from guess a year as they reform or they they sort of do more dates is that they get a new audience of young people who have really mm-hmm. gone to their kind of record libraries or so or the equivalent mm. and have discovered that new band from you know and they go my god they're still here and they're still touring so do you so have you sort of found a younger audience come to see the band now that um you've got some yes life? absolutely i mean i was talking to a girl the other day and she's 21 and she's been a Cassandra Complex fan since she was four years old because her parents used to play the music uh, when she was a little kid. Right. And she was at the show with her sister, her brother-in-law, and her parents, all of whom were huge fans of the band. Um, and they're in their 20s now. <clears throat> she and her sister in her 20s. Amazing. Um, which is uh, wonderful. I mean, what, I remember the last time we played in London, we, did, we were playing at uh, Lectureworks, I think, in London, a few years ago now. And after the show, I was hanging out at the bar and there was a bunch of young girls coming out going, wow, we love your band. It's You're so new and so exciting. It's got a, this new sound like we've never heard before. And I'm thinking, oh, my God, this is so funny. You know, it's like 20 year old kids are going, wow, you guys are so revolutionary and so new and exciting. <laughs> like, Which is sad. You know, it's really actually really sad. Uh, you know, I remember a, a few years back, I was uh, hanging out at a festival with Daniel Brezanuti from Frontipertui. And we we were spending a day hanging out just side of the stage, um, watching loads of bands. And we, we'd seen, lo- and at the end of the day, Daniel was like, you know, Rodney, these bands, we have more power and more excitement than any of them have. And it's so sad. It's so really sad. I want to see someone who can blow us off the stage. But none of them will do that. And it was true. Yeah. <laughs> it was true. It was yes. So there you go. There I mean, if too you, if many you could... pri- privileged white kids who've been to stage school and thought they could be rock stars. And it takes they it weren't takes doing it for the they weren't doing it for this the reasons we were doing it. No, this is true. So if you could have whispered to your 16-year-old self some sort of interesting word of advice is or wisdom is there anything that you would have just told them even if yes they i'd say you? i oh i can tell you exactly what I'd say. I'd say don't buy a guitar buy a computer um you know fuck this music business shit start making technology yes because um, that's the real rock stars these days you know and get into open source software and change the world. You know, we all thought we could change the world with our music back in the eighties. And and you know, as as Dave Peshmo pointed out in that song, like you know, you change one you change one person's mind, you do change the world. You change their world, and that's great and that's important. And I'm glad that we have 
changed so many people's lives over the years, and we really have. But that's still a drop in the in the bucket. If you want to really change society, you should be, you know, I I would have told myself back then, if you want to really change society, get into computing and change everything that way. Yes, you know? this is true. Because because the biggest challenge we face these days, and well, there's two big challenges we face in the world right now: climate change, obviously, um, which is just horrific, and anyone who isn't scared of that isn't paying attention. Uh, and the second is who owns technology? Is it going to be you know billionaire capitalists and their lackeys in the Conservative Party, or is it going to be owned by the people? And that's the that's the other big political question we have nowadays. Who yeah. owns the means of production? As Karl Marx pointed out, who owns the means of production? And in this case, who owns the means of production of information? Um, who controls the narrative? Exactly. There you go. It's all Marx and. What's it? Marks and Marks and Engels when you're young, and Marks and Spencers when you get older. <laughs> hey, no reason why you can't have both. <laughs> yes, I know you know where you are with Marks and Spencers. But look, you know, I'm, is... a I'm a champagne socialist. I don't believe everyone should be equally poor. I believe everyone should be equally rich. This is much better. This is what we we prefer. I know we still love our TVP and. SWP, but you know you want you want central heating in the winter. So um, <laughs> yeah, absolutely. <laughs> it's God. I have to say you've you've had a good time to leave the UK because it's been horrendously cold, horrendous. Mm -hmm. So um, never mind. Oh yeah, Look. it's very chilly here today. It's uh, it's a chilly seventeen degrees right now. Mm, interesting. We've had <laughs> we, we weeks of real bitter cold weather, so it's been fun. Anyway, yeah, look, that... this has been sorry. And that, dear listener, is the end of the interview. I know, very snappy, very smooth. That's what I'm. That's what they call me. Anyway, look, a massive thank you to Rodney from the Cassandra Complex. This has been David East of the C86 Show. Uh, if you want to contact me, you can on Facebook, Twitter, Instagram. Just do C86 Show. Keep it positive. Keep it groovy. And also, these have all been archived on Spotify, iTunes, Podbeam. It's true. Anyway, have a great week. Stay safe. <laughs>